0: If you see in a province the oppression of the poor and the violation of justice and righteousness, do not be amazed at the matter, for the high official is watched by a higher, and there are yet higher ones over them. But this is gain for a land in every way, a king committed to cultivated fields. He who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. For he will not much remember the days of his life because God keeps him occupied with joy in his heart. There's an evil that I've seen under the sun, and it lies heavy on mankind. A man to whom God gives wealth, possessions, and honor so that he lacks nothing of all that he desires. Yet God does not give him power to enjoy them, but a stranger enjoys them. This is vanity. It's a grievous evil. If a man fathers a hundred children and lives many years, so that the days of his years are many, but his soul is not satisfied with his life's good things, and he also has no burial, I say that a stillborn child is better off than he. For it comes in vanity and goes in darkness, and in darkness its name is covered. Moreover, it has not seen the sun or known anything, yet it finds rest rather than he. Even though he should live a thousand years twice over, yet enjoy no good. Do not all go to the one place? All the toil of man is for his mouth, yet his appetite is not satisfied. For what advantage has the wise man over the fool? And what does the poor man have who knows how to conduct himself before the living? Better is the sight of the eyes than the wandering of the appetite. This also is vanity and a striving after the wind. Whatever has come to be has already been named, and it is known what man is. And that he is not able to dispute with one stronger than he. The more words, the more vanity. And what is the advantage to man? For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? For who can tell man what will be after him under the sun? May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Let me let me try and introduce the tension of this passage if you didn't feel it while we were already reading it. As a way of getting us to face the world as it is, the author has been exploring what we call in theology the fall into sin and all of its effects. It's the combination of the ways that sin has corrupted the world with also the features of what is described as the curse in Genesis 3, which is God's response to sinful rebellion, where he's made it that, such that for all our effort apart from him, life does not ever really give us what we want or really satisfies So we got on one hand this feature like the the fall into sin came with a response from God where we see not only the corruption of our sin and our own nature and and it sort of being bent in on itself away from God. We also see God responding and saying now you're going to work the ground with the sweat of your brow. Uh, It's not going to give you easy gain and satisfaction. You're going to look all throughout life to find satisfaction apart from me and you're going to be dissatisfied. And you got these two features together that the writer has been exploring. Sure, there are good things, but he's been showing us throughout Ecclesiastes, life is a no-gain experience in the world under the sun apart from God. Everything we seek for lasting satisfaction is really the Hebrew word hevel or vanity. It's It's like we think we have it in our hands and it just disappears. It's fleeting. And its value and its substance. And he's been showing us this. And the teacher, who we take to be Solomon, even though he's not named, through the description, we take to be Solomon, the wise king, has brought us through every category we could look at and say, no, this is what life's really about. This is what's ultimate. This will really satisfy me. This will be the thing that I can set my attention on. And he's shown us that in the end, even the good things we hope to gain in them have no lasting value under the sun. That at some point life just undercuts them and we experience loss for all the labor that we've put in and at best a zero-sum game so he's been showing us this now he hasn't been entirely negative he's acknowledged temporary goods temporary good things and he's even said that some things are better than other things and can grant some sort of satisfaction One of those is what he calls toil, the the effort, our ingenuity in contact with the world, the things we put our hands to, they can, if we work hard, if we pay attention and use wisdom, our toil can be pleasing and we can gain good things that are like gifts from God that we can enjoy to some degree. And so he's been showing us like this idea that some level of increased toil can lead to increased wealth and possessions that in turn can be enjoyed and we can find them satisfying so so with that being the better thing that he points to you know we make a conclusion that increased toil can lead to increased prosperity therefore increased toil will always lead to increased prosperity you know in some sense he says wisdom is that in general Uh, you wisely work at life, interact with life, learn to sort of put some effort into things, and the result is you get some good things that come out the back end that, that can be satisfying. And we automatically go, well, then that means that if I just keep increasing the toil, increasing the effort more and more, I keep increasing the satisfaction. That's our conclusion. So we make that conclusion that, increased toil will always lead to increased prosperity and increased satisfaction so follow that hunger in you that appetite for more let it drive you join the hustle he just keeps pushing on this idea or simply put it's always good to have more of a good thing isn't it i mean think about that for a second that's kind of our natural bent it's always good to have more of a good thing if I really like this thing why wouldn't I want more of it certainly adding more of that good thing would lead to deeper satisfaction but in reality is it always good to have more of a good thing in this instance he's talking about more prosperous work that brings more wealth is that always good if it's good on some level is it always good to keep increasing it and to follow that formula right on if toil brings good gifts Does more toil always bring more good gifts? Or is there a point at which that breaks down? This is what he's asking in this passage. This key question. If toil brings good gifts, if our effort, our work, our ambition and willingness to put effort into things brings good things to us that we can enjoy, does more toil always bring more good gifts? I want you to think about that and how you've answered that question. Well, to answer that question thoroughly, the author takes us through this this whole thing that we just read. This is all one section in the book of Ecclesiastes about this idea. What do I do about my constant hunger for more? And should I assume by increasing my toil, I'm going to increase forever my sense of satisfaction and good gifts? So he takes us through this long conversation. Interestingly, this passage is arranged in a literarily brilliant way that points us to his clear answer to the question, which I think we know on some level, but he's going to drive home for us. I think we believe it to some degree that we can't just keep increasing our toil and expect that we're not going to experience diminished returns. But he wants us to experience it in a more visceral way so that we learn to be content. And he structured the passage to show us his main point. Now, it's going to be up on the screen here. Uh, This is a really interesting Hebrew poetry arrangement often found in literature called a chiasm. A chiasm is uh, the, the shape of what you see on the screen. The passage, if you were to look closely, is arranged in seven sections that are clearly divided out in the ESV if you read them but you will see them on the screen, like where those seven sections break up. And when you, it's arranged as a chiasm, which is a common form in Hebrew poetry where the idea is built up to, and then it's centered on and explained, and then it's unpacked in ways that are symmetrical to the way it was built up to. So that the, the end pieces, like as you're looking at this, the A and A2, in some sense, they're, they're talking about the same idea, Or getting us to wrestle with the same thing. B and B2 are doing the same thing in the argument. They're given sort of a theoretical explanation. And then C and C2 are both giving us different types of examples that reinforce the the point. So if you were to look, you would find then at the center of that, you would find the section that is in Ecclesiastes 5, 18 through 20, where the, the main thing he wants us to hear is located. Are you guys tracking with me? make some sense i don't write like this we don't write like this for the most part in western culture but but this there there are many times in scripture where this kind of arrangement is used and it's helpful for me because when i'm studying and i see one of these it draws me right away to go to the center of it and say what is the main point that he's really getting at and then i can look for that and how it's used in all the rest of what's going on does that make sense So that's what's happening here. Uh, And so the first, the main idea is always in the center. It's going to be something like this. And I'm not going to give it to you entirely. We're going to wrestle through it with the author. But the main idea in the center is like accept your lot or your portion in life. If you have good work to do, enough goods to enjoy, and the ability or time to enjoy them, be content because the next level of gain may not yield much better. That's kind of his main idea Learn to be content. That next thing you're striving for may actually come with serious diminished returns. So accept your lot. Accept your portion. Learn to do that in some ways. And then the corresponding sections. It allows us to see how these sections on each slide uh, are related and work together. For example, here he gives two ex- corresponding examples or parables about someone who didn't heed this teaching or warning. And it led to, ministry, to misery. And with that structure, we can see how to look at the passage. The argument is, increased prosperity does not always lead to increased satisfaction. So, learn to be content. So, if we were just to take that now, in this form, the way the argument goes, then, in order, is like this. He begins in verse 5, 8 through 9, first on the screen, pushing us to accept some things about life, about the arrangement of life that are just a given, particularly the uneven distribution of wealth. He's sort of like, you could get caught up in fighting against all that, but in a fallen world, in a broken world, where everybody's dealing with the corruption of sin, there's a lot of unevenness. So, what do you do? You may always be hungering to get to that next level. He moves on to the next section, verses 10 through 12. He gives an explanation of why life under the sun is the way it is. He tells the idea behind what is driving a lot of misery, no matter where you are on the ladder, an unwillingness to deal with our own desires. Then we get an example in verses 13 through 17 of something uh, he has observed regularly in life. A person who risked when they had enough and ended up with disaster. Then we get the main idea, 18 through 20. Then he says, here's another example. Chapter 6, verse 1 through 6. This this example furthers this picture in our mind of, what do I do if I don't control my my unending longings? What's the danger? And here it's that you can you can really only eat so much, both in the actual and theoretical sense, and gain more satisfaction. Then in verses 7 through 9 of chapter 6, he explains the theoretical concept again of appetites. And he explains particularly that we have a limit to our capacity for enjoyment and satisfaction, that God has purposefully given us under the sun. Then the ending, beginning in verse 10, challenges us to accept something more mature, something more important, except that God has a purpose in designing the world this way so that we would discover what's really beyond the sun and that we're foolish to try to fight against this reality. And part of wisdom is learning to accept that and ordering ourselves around what God is trying to point us to see really satisfies. And so it's, that, again, this idea of acceptance, but it's deeper. It's actually about God and not just accepting reality. And so we're going to get to all of those things. We're to see that God has made it all this way. And the path to wisdom is not to challenge and fight and contend with God, but to stop and consider what it means for our lives. So the fundamental question is, is it always good to have more of a good thing? And the answer to that question interacts with everything here. It's the backdrop of every section. Now, that's your preview of where we're going. And so we're going to just work through each of the seven sections and look at how he then deepens that with the actual ideas there. You guys ready to do that? Does everybody understand how this passage works? If you are, just say yes. Okay, thank you. At least humor me. All right. So as we look closer at the text now, let's look at verses 8 and 9. It helps us see the entry point to the conversation in verses eight and nine, because when I was reading this, when we were studying it as a group on Tuesday, um, I was like, this is kind of out of left field, right? And it doesn't even seem to fit. The rest of it's about wealth and honor and appetites. Uh, Well, in verses eight and nine, the teacher challenges us to accept that the hunger for more is behind all sorts of injustice. He's sort of saying, this isn't just a problem with you. This is a problem all over the place. Such that people are always going to try to gain advantage. And that person who maybe is trying to utilize you to gain advantage for themselves, they also have someone over them that's pressing down on them as well. And he's not saying that's a good thing. He's just saying it's so pervasive that in a broken world where sin, uh, sin is corrupted, that it's normal that we would expect to see this. Don't be shocked is what he's saying. Wisdom means not being shocked by reality on some level. And so he's showing us that it's not just a problem that individuals have, but much of our layers and systems of life has this sort of covetousness and out of control longing driving them. In fact, his point is there's always somebody above each person seeking to leverage them for more gain for themselves. If we're not careful, we'll spend all of our time wanting to get to that next person's level. And it's a mirage. Because when we get there, there's always someone above us <laughs> and someone above them and someone above them. And You never really get out of the system of getting to the next level and you're totally free from the influence of other people's desires impinging on you, trying to utilize you. And so he ends and he just says, listen, be satisfied if you if you've got a system, a king committed to cultivated fields, which seems like an odd thing. But what that means, actually, a wise and good king and a wise and good system, uh, a king committed to cultivated fields meant that he wanted his kingdom to be full of people who could have the opportunity to flourish by having fields and land and space to cultivate. Modernly, that might look like that we should just be thankful if we've got systems where we can flourish and we can have what we need and we don't don't always need to obsess at whoever has more or who's above. So that's what's going on in verses 8 and 9. Now, um, when we get into verses 10 and 12, 10 through 12, he gives the first explanation of the idea he wants us to take to heart. Look at those verses with me. He shows us that there's a desire for wealth in human nature that is dangerous and insatiable. Not able to be satisfied. It doesn't lead to satisfaction. Look what he says specifically. The person who loves money will never be satisfied with their wealth. The person who loves money will never be satisfied with their wealth. I mean, it makes you kind of think for a second, because we always use it going in this direction, Go, I don't love money, therefore, I'm sure at some point I could be satisfied with my wealth. I just haven't gotten there yet. Anybody feel that? I mean, let me say that again. It's probably, I don't know, I don't know you, but I feel like I know people from pastoring for a long time. I don't meet people, a lot of people satisfied with their level of wealth. And, but we're all, all convinced that we have a satisfaction point. And we're not that person who loves money we're just doing it to get this thing and that thing this thing and that thing and, and here he says you know if you're never satisfied with your level of wealth is it possible if you work backwards and went i'm not satisfied uh maybe i love money too much <laughs> maybe i'm overconfident in what that really gives to life now he mainly says what he says because money is a good means but is a bad end like a pile of money can only get you some things But staring at a pile of money isn't very satisfying. You understand what that means? To be clear here, he is not just talking about money, but material goods as well. Abundance. He starts scratching at this satisfaction question by saying for the first time that we only have the capacity to enjoy so much for ourselves. If you think about how he says it in verse 10 through 12, he says... The one who loves wealth is never satisfied with his income. Your rate of income is just not coming in fast enough to really be like, I'll be good. I'm good. I just need to speed up the amount that's coming in. But for the first time, he kind of reminds us, like, we've only got one mouth and too many meals. When goods increase, verse 11, they increase who eat them. There's a point at which you can't eat the goods that are there, and all that happens is you've got more mouths feeding on them. And uh, there's a sense of responsibility that comes with that. And so he starts scratching at this satisfaction question by saying for the first time that we only have the capacity to enjoy so much for ourselves. Therefore, at some point, the increases for other mouths, both actually and theoretically, the underlying idea is you have a capacity for what you can enjoy and more mouths increase responsibility as well, which may not be all that enjoyable. He ends the section here in 10 through 12 with a little proverb about the enjoyable sleep of the laborer versus the poor sleep of the feasting wealthy man. And uh, he wants us to see it from the angle of simple joys. Good sleep is enjoyable. I saw a meme recently. It was like, uh, I think Caleb Nelson sent it out wherever he's at. Uh, And um, it it was a, a picture of, it just said at the top, an adult having a good time. And the picture was a guy taking a nap. You know, there is something satisfying about a good nap or sweet sleep that we don't often, it's a gift of God. And so here, you know, if you've ever struggled with sleep challenges, you know that. But here in the passage, he says, you know, the laborer who works and toils, who has a meal and goes to bed, sleeps with a sense of satisfaction versus the the pains of a wealthy man who's eaten rich food and feasting but never does any work. and and and, you know immediately we go like oh i'd like to give that a try right i mean i want to be the feasting guy who doesn't have to do all that but you can think about two ways that wealth increases the lack of sort of a sense of sleeplessness there's the anxiety of what we have to manage that might even be beyond our ability you know somehow we've stored up these things and there's the fear of losing them and missing the opportunity and people have all kinds of anxiety about this and have trouble sleeping but then you know sometimes we just got so much food like have you ever have you ever had so much like rich food that you have indigestion you just have trouble sleeping I mean I think we know that experience well enough at least a few occasions right uh where that's happened to us where we can go oh I get what he's saying there's something there's something simple about the delight of working hard and having the basics, enjoying the relationships and going to bed. Like that's a, th- there's something beautiful about that that can be missed when we have a constant hunger for increased wealth. So feasting and not working often leads to bad sleep and indigestion. So maybe wealth isn't always gain. And he's just saying, here's one way. Take a gl- glimpse. Like Maybe more and more in that life that is just sort of gluttonous maybe is, is not always a gain. Here's an example. So so then we move into this third section as we kind of climb the stairs or make our way out to the point of our our conversation here. We move into this next section. He's really going to focus on this idea of the danger of our unexamined longings. He gives a a real-life example here beginning in verse 13. He calls it a grievous evil. It's a poetic way of saying it's, it's extremely tragic and sorrowful. So he gives us a tragic and sorrowful story. But he's given it in a way that we're to, to understand that it regularly happens. That something like this can and does often happen for the person who's, who's, who has wealth but wants to continually increase it. And they have to take the risk to do that. He's described, he describes an example of a person who is described as keeping their wealth for, their, for themselves to their own hurt. That should put a new category in some of our minds. A category where we keep our wealth to our own detriment. I mean, maybe you've never thought that is a category, but it's possible that our wealth is designed in some way to be used to bless other people in in a consistent degree and not just kept for ourselves. And and so that means that there's a a way to possess the abundance and the things that we have that isn't this, but, but we can be in danger of keeping it to our own hurt. He doesn't go into details about that, but this person did it. This person had that wealth and thought, you know, while I have it, I'm going to go ahead and take the risk to try to increase it. And so it says he goes on a risky venture that goes poorly. And so he had enough. He had wealth that he could have shared with others even, but he decides to risk it to get more. And in risking it to get more, he ends up losing it. And what makes it more tragic is he has a son. He has a son who he could have been blessing. That's kind of the understanding of the idea here in verses 13 through 17. And now he has nothing to give him. It's tragic. It's, a, it's an evil under the sun. His appetites ruined his ability to serve this son. Our appetites ruin our ability to do with our wealth at times what God has designed it for to be able to care for people, to exercise the the, the great commandment of loving our neighbor as ourselves. I mean, have you ever thought about how your abundance is is actually entrusted to you by God to exercise His love? This is is what the rest of Scripture would teach us we should do with with our abundance in that if we're not careful, our desire for more and more and our thought that we will be increasingly satisfied by pursuing it will drag us into ruin. So as he laments this man's experience, he gets pretty universal about the plight of all mankind. You know, he describes, he's like, essentially naked we come into the world, naked we'll go out. And he says, he says here, here's what he's doing there. Have you ever heard that at like a funeral or maybe in old movies? It was regular, regularly read at a funeral where it's like you can bring nothing, you brought nothing into this world, you can take nothing out, ashes to ashes, dust to dust. This whole kind of idea that he goes here. What he's saying is, life is like that tragedy of that man. At some point, if we don't use our wealth, our abundance to bless others, something's going to cut us off from it. We're going to die. Then what was it worth? It's going to be someone else's. You're not taking it anywhere. And so it's an encouragement to consider do you want to be the one who considers how to use your prosperity and your abundance and your blessing in a way that is good that is generous so he says verse 17 moreover in addition to that if you get to the end of your life and you missed a boat on this and you didn't you know or if you risk during your life and you don't get to bless other people because you just couldn't control your appetites your desire for more You also don't avoid just the other difficult things of life, the confusion (laughs) that we often face, the challenges, the ups and downs, the sense of loss and death. These are a part of life under the sun. And so you spend your days not gaining anything through your toil and facing confusion and vexation and sorrow and sickness, and eventually death. Now, I realize that's not the most uh, encouraging idea on a Sunday morning for us to think about, is it? But but it actually brings us to then a really wise section of instruction in section number four uh, where we're at the point, the main point. So what he does is you can hear his tone shift if you see uh, in the passage as he goes to 18. Behold what I've seen to be good and to be fitting. Now good and fitting in Ecclesiastes means on the basis of this, this would be the appropriate way for us to respond. Here's what would be good and fitting then given all of these constraints and the situation. Given the reality of life under the sun, the best we can do is to learn that our hunger for more is hevel, he says. It's vanity. It's pursuing something that looks like it has substance, but then fades in the end. And so, he tells us to think differently. Given the reality under the sun, the best we can do is learn that it's hevel. And an empty pursuit to keep going for more and more and more and receive the enjoyment that we do have as a gift of God without pushing the limits. He mentions four things that we should consider and I'm going to form them into questions for us to take to heart. Those come out in verse 9 if you look. He says that it's a gift of God when we have a positive balance like sufficient wealth, enjoyable work, and a capacity to enjoy the fruits of our labor And we're willing to accept that as our lot in life. Like, this is what you got. This is where you're at. Instead of always wishing we had gotten to some other level, some other thing, and scratching to get there. And so it made me ask four questions that are going to be on the screen. I would encourage you to think about this. We we were talking about, how do we find the sweet spot then? If the point of his passage is to say that the increased toil may not actually bring increased satisfaction, he says at some point... When, we ha- when some things are true, we have sufficient provision for our life. We enjoy our labor. We have the, the space and time and power capacity to enjoy the fruit of those labors. We should just be satisfied. <laughs> like, accept it. Accept it as a way of saying, accepting our lot is a way of saying, um, receive it. <laughs> like, if you're not satisfied, learn to be. Turn your heart towards finding satisfaction in just resting in God's provision. And so he says, you know, how do we find that sweet spot? Chapman Pugh was a a part of the um, sermon discussion in prep on Tuesday as we were thinking about that. And we were talking about, like, well, how do you know, existentially, like experientially, how do I figure that out? When do I know? Well, I can't tell you. You got a lot of things. You're the one who has to learn wisely to walk through your life. But we do get, I can give you some questions based on what we just saw here. The first one is, do I have sufficient provision for the basics of life? Do I, have the, do I have the basic needs in life covered? For many of them, the answer is yes, and then some. The second is, do I enjoy the labor I'm involved in? If one of the sweet things in life is enjoying the work that we have to do, uh, it's appropriate for us to try to arrange our life to enjoy the kind of work we're involved in. Some people have all these other categories you know, checked off, but they really hate their work, and they spend so much time in that work that... Uh, it's going to be really hard to find a sense of satisfaction and enjoy the fruits of that labor. And so, do I enjoy the labor I'm involved in? Number three, do I have capacity to enjoy the fruits of that labor? We can just imagine a situation where you enjoy the work, it does provide for you, but no, you don't have any time or bandwidth left over, emotional energy, or you name it, to actually enjoy the results you get out of that work. But he says when all three of those things are there, we should just receive it. <laughs> like This is a good place to be in life. You don't need the next level. There's a chance that risking to the next level might actually cause you to lose. So the fourth question is, can I accept my lot in life, this set of constraints? Can I accept this set of limits then that are currently on my life? You know, every one of us faces limits. We've got things in our life that limit what we can do or accomplish right now accepting those limits wisely is a part of growing and maturing in life and so you got to think about the the limits you have is this something I can accept so do I have sufficient provision for the basics do I enjoy the labor I'm involved in do I have capacity to enjoy the fruits of that labor and can I accept my lot in life can I accept this set of limits When you have this, it brings a present joy. He says it's a gift of God that can make you forget about the many pains in life and the ups and downs that we experience. And so that's the main idea he's brought us to in this passage. But he wants to drive it home further as we look at the other sections. He goes on and says, now listen, this is a brilliant idea. Accept some limits. Ask some questions. Be warned that more isn't better in many circumstances. So in in chapter 6, verse 1 through 6, which isn't a new topic just because it's a new chapter in the Bible, like those are just helping us find our place. They're not original. They're just there to help us find our place. And so he continues on. In verses 6, 1 through 6, he gives us a new example of a person who isn't satisfied with whether uh, and isn't convinced um, that he's got enough. And so he's not, a, he's not satisfied here in whether or not he's convinced us to like buy into this idea of contentment. So he keeps pushing. And he shows us that we don't have endless capacity to enjoy more. Now, he uses the term here, the power to enjoy. Capacity is what he's talking about when he mentions the power to enjoy what we have. God hasn't made it such that we have endless capacity to enjoy endless increase. Why should we look for a spot where we can be satisfied (laughs) and content? Because increased wealth we don't always have the capacity to consume it and be satisfied so he gives us a second example of a person who has everything everything but the power he says to enjoy what he has (laughs) like this is our problem the ability to find satisfaction and contentment in it now that word power there can mean capacity or opportunity He doesn't have the ability, for some reason, either capacity or opportunity, to enjoy it. So he describes this man with everything. He says he has wealth, possessions, and honor. All his heart's desire, he says, but not the power to enjoy them. Which means, in the end, someone else is going to enjoy all of that abundance. To bring that home, he uses hyperbole. The man has 100 children, which sounds overbearing, doesn't it? You know, I've got four. They're awesome. But 100 that sounds like a lot but here this was a symbol like in ancient times where in an agrarian society this is hyperbolic you know but he is he's like that would be a huge blessing like this guy is thriving he's got the ability to increase wealth others who can work the fields and he can just do more like think of all we could do if we had all these people in together on this family project right that's kind of the idea and so he's got 100 children which would have been a sign of prosperity He's got so many possessions, but not satisfaction in his soul. And the idea is that God, who is sovereign over life, holds all the other factors in life in his hands that must go well for you and I to be able to enjoy the fruits of our labor. And he says, under the sun, there's many times where we don't. Think of ways that this could be true. Just let me just list a few. You could have wealth and lack the health to enjoy it. Right. You could have wealth and lack the freedom to enjoy it. Places around the world, that's true. You could have wealth and lack the relational peace in your life to enjoy it. You could have wealth and lack the time to enjoy it. Let's think about our back patio this weekend. We've been through just kind of a busy season, and I thought, I've not sat out here for quite a while. <laughs> we were enjoying the day yesterday, and it took you know uh, my in-laws coming into town for me to sit in this thing that I built so that we could rest and relax. You could have wealth and lack the foresight to enjoy it. Not knowing that what's coming next and taking some time to enjoy what God has blessed you with. You could have wealth and lack the mindset. just You're just addicted to the hustle. Addicted to the next thing. The teacher here is so taken by this tragic idea of a person pouring themselves out day after day in their toil but never being satisfied that he says the darkest most hyperbolic thing in the book here. He compares that person to a stillborn child and says it's worse to be than this. Now I want to point out this isn't a technical argument, it's an emotional argument. He's trying to help us feel that, you know, he's he's not saying this is objectively true. What he's saying though is that that life under the sun For someone who hasn't realized we're really to come back to God and find our satisfaction can be so sorrowful as we experience the disappointment of life not delivering, of work not delivering, of all that, that it can be so depressing and despairing. It would almost like be better to have not had the opportunity to experience that at all. Now that's heavy, dark even. But the reason he does that is because he wants us to see just how off life is when we're pursuing our endless desires. That he would even make that comparison is extreme. And it shows, in a sense, it's a hyperbolic way of expressing how tragic the hunger for more without recognizing what really matters in life really can be. There are a few things that are, are more tragic than a stillborn child. And he says, this is a tragedy, but we are blind to it because we're stuck in it. So he wakes us up with something that is really, really, really tragic. And says, you don't see it. The tragedy is that you believe increased effort, increased work, increased wealth is going to satisfy you. And you are stuck running on that treadmill and it's not going to get you there. That's a tragedy. A deep, deep, painful tragedy that he wants to interrupt for us. Which leads him to explain the principle in verse 7 to 9. Better to enjoy the good that you have than to give in to the endless appetite for more. We have a capacity to what we can actually enjoy and that our unsatisfied appetites will lead us to violate if we're not careful. And here's how he says it clearly. He shows us that chasing endless appetites will lead to diminished returns. This is what he wants us to know. When he says all our toil is for our mouths in verse 7, he is saying that once you have what is sufficient for you, the appetite to go beyond is feeding something that can't be satisfied. The return on your toil and effort goes way down. Now, if you've been listening to me preach for a while, there's no doubt about it. I love food. You figured that out. I'm a bit of a foodie. Good steak is one of God's good gifts. I thought I'd get an amen out of that one, to be honest, guys. When Annie and I were traveling a couple years ago, we ate at this Argentinian steakhouse uh, called uh, Alto Fuego. Thank you, honey. Alto Fuego literally we're in the bottom of this beautiful restaurant with the perfect Argentinian steak and I just like my life peaked it felt like for a second (laughs) and I just ate it and I was like what do you where do you go from here I literally said that it was like one of those really good moments I I said it out loud and Annie was like I don't know what's happening (laughs) like (laughs) It's like I like, this sounds sad. <laughs> I was like, no, just let me have this moment. It's not going to get better than this. It's going to go downhill. And it was great. It was so good. And I just sort of relished in it for a moment. We were there for a week, and three days later, I thought, I'm going back to that place. And uh, the second time wasn't as good. Got to be honest. Why not go for more? Well, it turns out it was less good that second time. Here's the foolish idea we have here. Our appetites for wealth tell us more is going to be better. (laughs) Always. So let's imagine I have that food from Alto Fuego three times a day. You know, I could be like, okay, this is a good life. I'm going to set it up where I get to have that meal three times a day awesome but now I'm like you know if I worked really hard I could probably have that meal six times a day you know and if I had a little bit more toil I have more and I can feed my soul there's many good things and you know that sounds great does it sound good to have six steak meals a day <laughs> okay we got at least one guy in the room but then you know you can always keep going to uh, going on and be like you know if I, if I get just a little bit more and I would say you know in terms of our wealth if we're just really honest we're like six meal a day people Like, we got so much stuff, we've got storage places because we couldn't eat all six meals. But we're working hard to get so that we could eat nine of those meals a day. And at what point is our life just not just consuming these things that we think will make us more and more satisfied and working and working and working and working to try to get more and more and more, but we can never actually consume them. And he says, you can only feed one mouth and the rest goes for other people. That's why he says, better is the sight of the eyes than the appetite. Because that appetite thing, when you're full, when you've already eaten, <laughs> when you've got what you need, that appetite is something wrong with us. <laughs> it's a hunger for a satisfaction that this world can't satisfy. That's what's really up on these slides, the next slide. You kind of see, this is our expectation. The prosperous work will lead. All you got to do is just keep increasing it. And we can get some more of that satisfaction. Our expectation just keeps going up and to the right. But his point is actually a different idea. That at some point you cross a line where the returns just diminish extremely. Like this. That's reality. And over there on the other side where we've increased all of our toil and all of our effort and we're loading up wealth and all that's increasing, our satisfaction is not. It just bottoms out at some point. Leaves, you know, once your mouth is full, the remaining appetite is for something that food can't satisfy. Once you hit a certain level of prosperity, the remaining appetite is for something that wealth can't satisfy. This is true in every category of desire and is a part of how God made us so that we would know that all of these longings can only point us to discover, That what we're really longing for is to be restored to God. The one who knows us. Whose gifts are good. Who gives us limits. Who calls us to generosity. Who says there's another purpose for our abundance. You see, sin has gotten a hold of our appetites and wants to leave us chasing. When God wants to reorder it all so that we find our satisfaction in him. And then we're freed up. To use our abundance for the things that matter most to his heart. And all of this brings us to v- verses 10 through 12 and brings it into perspective. God has made it this way. God doesn't want you finding satisfaction in something under the sun, He wants you to know that everything under the sun is a gift from His hand. And that your real satisfaction is found in him. You were made for him. You were made for a relationship with him. To know him. To commune with him. To be limited by him actually. To walk with him. To learn from him. And until you do that. You're going to chase all of these categories. And all of those appetites that you have. Those longings for more. And he says you can't contend. Listen because God has made it this way you can't contend with god (laughs) we already know what people are you could say i'm going to beat this he says we've already seen you (laughs) we've seen you you've been before like something like you has been before you're not beating this system you were made for god that endless search should turn you to god this is not a new problem what you're contending with is god's design for revealing the emptiness of life under the sun apart from him And pointing you to his divine wisdom and salvation as your true purpose and meaning. The answer to the probing question that he asks here at the end when he says, For who knows what is good for a man while he lives the few days of his vain life, which he passes like a shadow? And the answer is, God does. God knows what is good for you. Come back to God. Return to him. Find your satisfaction there. And you'll be freed to do with your wealth and your appetites the things that you need to do with them. Who knows what is good in this fleeting world of Hevel? God knows. So let's end by hearing the gospel from this passage offered to us in Christ. Our desires, our appetites, our ambitions have been corrupted and co-opted by the effects of sin. So we've been led on this search for satisfaction that has drawn us to make ourselves and our satisfaction our true good. It's an idolatry of self-fulfillment many of the most sinful things we've done were to try to satisfy these out of control appetites in our lives and deep down we're really trying to save ourselves and fix ourselves and provide for ourselves yet god has said that what is broken is we've left him like the prodigal son he offers a gift to us to simply come home and trust his provision jesus christ instead of fulfilling some longing for personal satisfaction laid down his life on the cross to cover our guilt and shame So that we could return to God and learn to trust Him as our portion and our lot and our satisfaction. And until you believe, until you believe that true satisfaction comes through receiving this gift from God, you will be on an endless search. Yet God offers today for you to repent and to turn to Him. Through His promised presence of the Holy Spirit, He transforms our longings, offers us hope so that we can come to Him and have real hope by faith. It's the gift of god to receive salvation not our toil it will reorder your life here and remind you daily that god is able to give us satisfaction that isn't found under the sun but is a glimpse of eternity where we will dwell with him and be satisfied in his presence and if you have been searching god has brought you here to find your true satisfaction pray with me lord we thank you for this time this opportunity to gather today and as people who have appetites and desires and endless opportunities lord we know that those can get out of control and they can be to our own harm and detriment and today god we want to come to you and be reminded that the best things that we have received in life have come as a gift from your hand particularly the gift of a relationship with jesus christ so as we celebrate these baptisms today Would you give us hope? Remind us of your promise. In Jesus' name.